You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Octavio Fernandez y Mostajo. And I am Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we are talking with Matt Humphrey, who is the Director of Theological Education at Arosha, Canada, uh, and as well is uh, a curate in the Anglican Church at a church on Vancouver Island. And if you don't know Matt, then let me tell you a little bit about him, because it'll give you a little bit of a sense of the things we talked about. Mm-hmm. So Matt has been teaching on the integration of theology and earthkeeping since 2010, uh, and he's served as a sessional instructor at Columbia Bible College at Trinity Western University here in BC. He's a Regent grad, and he's most recently been teaching the Regent course called Food, Creation, Community and Communion with Lauren and Mary Ruth Wilkinson and Jeff Greenman. And so um, if you don't know Matt, Matt loves creation and loves thinking theologically and biblically about uh, how we understand the land and place and um, how do we understand caring for creation. So we had a really good conversation with him. And if you haven't really thought about this topic, it's a good sort of intro to Mm -hmm. thinking theologically about some of these issues. So enjoy our conversation with yet another thoughtful, intelligent, vigorous and joyful grad of Regent College uh, about all sorts of things to do with creation. Matt Humphrey, welcome to the Region College Podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here. I mean, I'm still in my own house, but be wherever we are in COVID tide. It's beautiful. Exactly. Do you know, Octavia, I don't think I told you this, the place where I met Matt Humphrey was on Galliano Island for my Ooh. first Regent class, the food course. Mm-hmm. Which, That's right. Yeah, it was a beautiful time. And we've, you know, since made um, sarcastic jokes with each other really since then. So that's, it's that's been right. great. How, so how did you come to be at Regent? And then kind of how, do you, how did you come to be here? And then what's, how does your time at Regent shape what you're doing now, which we'll spend a little bit more time chatting about? But Sure. So, yeah, I, well, I grew up um, far, far away, as did you, Claire. I was, but I grew up, I like to say I grew up in a John Denver song, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. And um, I... I finished university uh, with a degree in philosophy and a lot of big questions about the world and a desire to learn mm-hmm. and study. And <clears throat> I didn't, part of me wanted to go to seminary. I thought I may have a call to serve the church. And this other part of me thought, I don't, I feel called to serve the church. I'm not sure it's going to be as a kind of, you know, guy who stands in the front and wears a collar and does all of that sort of business. But um, I didn't want to just go to a, a grad school and earn another degree. And I wasn't sure I wanted to go to seminary. And then I was out here for a summer, for a summer job that I had in BC. And in the process of being out here and just meeting people and sharing the same story of, I think I might go to seminary. I'm not really sure. Everyone I met said, oh, well, goodness, surely you've heard of Regent College. I said, nope, haven't heard of it. Mm. So just the process of having to be here for the summer and I went and inquired and did the campus visit and sort of thought, oh, this is this is almost exactly what I think I might like to do. And so initially I was going to do a year here. And um, I know this is a very unfamiliar story, Claire, but uh, 
I'll just do a year and keep, you know, my identity intact. And then of course that all shifted. <laughs> um, that's right. No, it's like, it's like hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, we, yeah. So in terms of how it has shaped me, goodness, I think, you know, and this gets us into some of our topic, I think we're on about today, but I, I mean, I started university in September of 2001. So two weeks into that, uh, the World Trade Center uh, happened. And I was kind of coming of age and really coming coming into my own faith in a time when um, what was being represented, at least culturally, and the dominant cultural paradigm for faith around me just didn't compute with what I understood the Jesus of the Gospels to be. Um, mm-hmm. And as I learned, I had a passion for the environment for creation, for the outdoors. And as I reflected more and engaged with Christians more, I just felt like there was this yawning gap between what we said we believe theologically about God as creator and then the way that Christians seem to engage this in the public and in the culture. And a lot of that drove me uh, in my own studies um, to, to look for a way that this would hang together. And so when I was here and starting to find out about Regent College, I said, I can only be here if this is a kind of topic that we could actually do and explore. <laughs> and so this put me on the map pretty quickly mm-hmm. of Lauren Wilkinson and, and, and on and on we go. And so I think that would be the core thing for me as an alumni is to say, you know, faith is about integrating all of our life under the, who we understand God to be revealed in Christ. And that means that, um, a, it's a never-ending process. We haven't arrived at it, even if we have a degree now next to our name. Um, and it means that we're always we're always in danger, I think, of overlooking some aspect of the invitation of faith, of discipleship that's in front of us. So that's that's a big part of what Regent did for me. It, you know, I could list a lot more. I mean, goodness, it gave me a, a historical consciousness of the fact that we're not doing this alone, we're not doing this as people who kind of mm-hmm. found a Bible in the back of our church basement and no, we're doing this, you know, as a part of a long story of people struggling to do it and doing it imperfectly and arguing among themselves. And But I found Regent to be a really warm place in terms of receiving some of what I uh, brought and the traditions that I've been a part of and um, and trying to foster a, a meaningful conversation around these things. So It's not good. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want to come to a place like that? Well, I'll tell you what. You can't actually come to it now, but soon we think you can. No. <laughs> be a part of it. Be a part be of a, it. Yeah, right. Yes. Be a part Love of it. Love that. Go for it, Octavia. Yeah, man. So somehow you ended up in a place called Arasha. Yes. Can you tell us what Arasha is? Where did it start? How did you end it, you know, being involved with Arasha? Certainly. So Arasha, let me just talk about the organization briefly and then how I came in. So Arasha is a a Christian conservation environmental organization. It was started in the 80s, 1983, by Peter and Miranda Harris, who um, have done some teaching at Regent. In fact, I was in a course, uh, but more more on that uh, momentarily. So they, uh, Peter was an Anglican priest in the Church of England um, and an avid birder. It's a sort of uh, requisite thing. If you want to be an Anglican priest of the evangelical variety, you have to know a thing or two about birds. And they, uh, but they also, out of that, had a passion for creation and to see creation as God's handiwork, as something God had called the church to care for. Mm-hmm. 
and um, then as in now, much of the church was just woefully silent on the issues facing us around creation. And they had a passion for what could be done with that. And it's a long story. They've written a marvelous book on the early days of that called Under the Bright Wings. Um, and they end up in Portugal mm-hmm. uh, at a place called Gruzinha that they set up, the first study center. And it was named Arasha, which in Portuguese means the rock. And it's um, because it was the, the rocky uh, Algarve coast of Portugal, but also because it, they seek to build the organization on the rock of our faith of Christ. Um, so they said, we're going to, we're going to exist here, uh, as, as a small Christian, uh, community, we're going to open our doors to Christian hospitality and we're going to engage in practical hands-on work of caring for creation where they were primarily. That was Portugal is the kind of stopover for all the migratory birds of Western Europe. So they were bird banding and studying and slowly people would mm. pop in and visit and say, what is this thing you're doing? And explain to us what this is about. And and so over meals, over probably a few glasses of wine, over early morning trips to the estuary, uh, you know, the, the kind of lived incarnation of their faith started to spread. Um, mm. You fast forward 30 years from 83, now almost, you know, we're tickling around the edge till 40. Russia has 20, we're projects in 20 countries around the world. There's probably another 20 that are in queue to set up some sort of official thing. Um, it's a it's it's a wonderful kind of big, small organization. It operates really as a small local organization wherever it exists. Even in Canada, we uh, we have mm-hmm. centers in just outside Vancouver and then in Winnipeg and in Hamilton and a few other small partnered projects on northern BC. And we've done some things in Alberta, et cetera. So you could say, wow, Canada, we're really big and spread out. But in fact, every every project operates fairly locally and is fairly attuned to you know, what are the needs of this area, of its people, of the place itself, and how do we kind of foster that care? So I, I took a course with Peter and Miranda when they were here, I think in 2007 or eight. And as I was finishing my time at Regent, I loved the theology. I loved the life of the mind. I had thought I love interacting on these ideas and teaching, but I need to find a place where this is lived out and embodied in a community and so at the encouragement, really, of, of Mary Ruth Wilkinson and Lauren, uh, they mm. said, you really should go and check out Arasha. Now, I, at the time, all I knew about it was birding. And I, while I love creation, <laughs> I'm not, I don't come at it. A, I don't have, yeah, I don't have any wool trousers. Like, there's just a bunch <laughs> of problems. Anyway, um, no, but I don't come at it as a scientist. I, I really come at it um, from a different, a different sort of uh, vantage point. So... I said, no, 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 it's more than just that. Check it out. And so I did and and started to go and eat meals there and share meals and conversation and realize, Mm -hmm. wow, a lot of the things I feel most passionate about in terms of how the church would engage this, Arasha is really trying to work on. And um, that, yeah, that led us when I graduated in 2009. Uh, My wife, Roxy, and I went and moved out there and started working part time. And then fast forward and here here we are. We no longer live there. We lived there for seven years at the study center mm. at Brooksdale, but I still have a part-time role that's now wholly focused on, um, this question of how the church engages theology and education around creation. So. Matt, you're using creation rather than the environment. Yes. Is that intentional? Yeah, certainly it's intentional. I think <clears> the, <throat> you know, the problem with, uh, as 
one of our patron saints, Wendell Berry, sort of says the you know the the problem with environment is that it it signals our minds to something that environs us that surrounds us. Uh, whereas, uh, which is true, but, it, but creation includes us and it, and we're, it's inside of us and it's around us. So it's, and I think it gives a nod theologically, uh, to the fact that for me, the fact, the fundamental fact that the world doesn't have to be, that it is the result of some divine gift that we engage it and we receive it and we interact with it. And the moment that we start to take it as a given or as for granted, I think we've lost sight of a core theological tenet, um, I think it's Thomas Aquinas that says if God wanted to destroy the world, you know, he wouldn't have to do anything, but rather stop doing something. And so the notion that mm. creation isn't just something that happened one, you know, a long, long time ago, but in fact, the world is somehow held in being by the loving gaze of God, I think to me is very important. Um, and especially when we start to study closely the the set of interlocking and very overwhelming crises that, fe- that threaten creation, um, to me, it becomes even more important that we kind of, we have this formative rehearsal of, no, we believe in God as creator. We believe the world is charged with the grandeur of God, to use Hopkins' phrase. So that's why I use that word. I have no interest in engaging a discussion about how old the thing is or any of that. So the while I, I, I understand there's context within which that is an important conversation, um, that's not at all what I'm signaling in that word. <clears throat> I figured you'd have something good to say about that. Well, maybe maybe on a future podcast. <laughs> um, so then, so thinking about so you're kind of you're the the work that you're trying to do in engaging sort of a theology of creation and how we how we sort of how that's integrated with education. How how are you approaching environmental education or create? What do we call it? Do we call it environmental education? Can we still use that word there? Sure. How do you do that? And what sort of what are you trying to do as part of as part of that? So. Great question. So I should then I should then say that the the work that I'm doing uniquely in the context of Arasha is somewhat distinctive. So most of what we do with education is it's all embodied, it's all hands on, and it's um, not exclusively, but there's a lot of it that happens certainly at the Arasha centers with children, and part of that is you know the old I I did a I did a couple of semesters towards a. Um, a graduate diploma in environmental education. And the old, the old thinking was that what we really needed to do if we want to affect change was get children on board to care for the earth and teach them about it and help them understand it. And that would sort of be an important thing. And what a lot of the research in the last say five or 10 years has discovered actually is that the children are born with a, with an inbuilt sense of wonder. Like they, they don't have a generally have a problem seeing the world as creation. Um, they they see that there's some there's all there's a there's a mystery and a magic latent in the world, and and so a lot of what environmental education has moved towards it's less about let's give them the facts they need to understand this world, it's more about <clears throat> let's give them opportunities and experiences within which they can begin to kind of nurture this thing that's inside of them. I think this. I think there's a parallel research that's actually happening now around spiritual formation in children. The idea that children need to be convinced that there's a God out there. I think. I think it's a bit different. I think they're more. They're being socialized into a world that behaves as if there is no God, just as they're being socialized into a world that behaves as if what what it really means to be a proper adult has nothing to do <laughs> with the rest of the with the non-human creation. So a lot of what we're doing then in education is trying to say, can we, 
can we create uh, settings within which children can encounter something of the marvel and mystery of the world? And sure, we need to give them language to make sense of that. We need, you know, we need to do a bit of teaching, but some of it is really just getting out of the way. And so, you know, at Brooksdale Environmental Center, this, the Arasha site outside Vancouver where I lived, we would regularly see groups of school children, you know, running to and fro. And, and half the time they would be doing games that had been very carefully set up in activities. And other times they're they're playing, they're exploring, they're they're heading off to the compost pile. And sure, we have, for those groups, we have curriculum that has been uh, set up and is approved, you know, as part of the BC education. Um, but some of what they're just doing is getting a chance to have unstructured time outdoors. And you'd be shocked at the number of kids who haven't had that as part of anything, maybe even in their life. I mean, we have, we've had children who have grown up in Surrey, it's a very urban center outside Vancouver. They've never been into a forest because they're taught those are unsafe places. They're, they're taught those are threatening places. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you go into the little forest at Brooksdale and they're sure that there's going to be a wolf and a bear. And um, So that's the general approach. It's very hands-on. It's very, can we help cultivate the sense that the world is alive, it's wonderful, it's marvelous. Uh, there's something in it for us. That, that kind of affection begins to build. Yeah, so sort of two tracks, I guess. One is to try and help people connect, build a kind of ecological literacy. What does it mean to live as a creature in a place? Mm-hmm. And then to build a kind of biblical and theological literacy to be able to then articulate a vision of how those come together. That That's how I understand the core of my vocation. And, and that's both as a part of Arosha and then also as the work I do within the church. I understand a very parallel sort of thing to be. And then what do you do with, with the grown-ups then? It's basically like, yep, lost cause, just let's approach the kids. <laughs> well, you would be shocked at how often that is the approach, um, even within the literature. I certainly don't think that's the case. And I think that, you know, what, what mm. I find myself often doing is, uh, yes, it's working with how do people connect to these, to these concerns. But I've actually found that um, given, given enough time and patience, People can connect to that inside themselves. Um, you know, I we've gone every year. We go to Missions Fest and set up a booth, and we are uh, often sort of gently interrogated by, you know, folks at Missions Fest who are not necessarily sure that we belong there. Um, and so it's been really interesting kind of practice for me to have conversations to, you know, not get caught up in in, in politics or other specific issues, though those are important. I think we have to get around to those. But to say, you know, before we can talk about that, we need to find what is some common ground that we may have. And in this, I do think that the scripture does an awful lot um, of, of kind of heavy lifting to say, this is an issue that it's not peripheral. And it's not, from my view, it's not really optional. It's not the kind of issue that, well, let's let those few Arosha people deal with you know, life on the planet. Like this is a core, <laughs> it's a core issue and it informs all the others. So pick the issue that you really care passionately about as a Christian. Um, I think, I think the health of creation does tie into it on one level or other. And you, you were talking before about kind of part of, part of your theological thinking around this is this whole idea of land and place. That's right. And so, and you've said, we think it's you who said this, um, in America, we don't have place; we have careers. And so, what do you right. what do you mean by that? And what's what's kind of what's going on there? 
Yeah, that's a quote. It, I have I have used it often enough, but it's a quote from a guy called Alan Durning, a beautiful book, This Place on Earth, and he's interviewing um, he's interviewing these traditional peoples, I think, in the Philippines, and through a translator is trying to hear from this old uh, old woman who who asks him, "Tell me what your place is like." And he's taught, he has this, he describes thinking, he lives in Washington, D.C., he works for a massive environmental nonprofit, and he realizes, I have no meaningful mm-hmm. connection to my place whatsoever. I only, I exist on top of it as it gives me access to be in D.C., or it, it, here's what it, here's how it serves me, but I don't live among it or in it in a meaningful way. I mean, again, if you, if you're to contrast this with traditional indigenous people's, you know, relationship to land, it's shocking. So eventually, this is the response mm-hmm. that he gives. In America, we have careers, not places. And I do think in terms of what we fundamentally value, you know, what we would put our life on the line for, we put an awful lot on the line for our careers and for career advancement. We will, we're, we're mobile, we will reorient mm-hmm. our life. And I know very few people that I think would give the same for a place that they love, Um and so that, I mean, it becomes a kind of entree into a broader conversation about um, what it means to be human. And I think having a healthy relationship to our place and affection for it is is one of the things that I think we uh, in the modern West are really lacking and really missing. And so that puts us at odds. It puts us at great odds with every writer of scripture for whom, I mean, life in the land and faithfulness to God were inherently woven together. It puts us it puts us at odds with mm-hmm. our indigenous brothers and sisters across this continent, for whom you know what this isn't just a an economic and political question about pipeline or Project X. This is this is an issue of my you know generations of my people in this land and in this place and our faithfulness to our teachings. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot in that for us to really grapple with, uh, which is why the the quote I think can be a potent way onto it. Yeah, and it does have to do with a with a country of immigrants, right? If you're an immigrant, it's hard to understand, and and I don't know. It becomes also a conversation of, of size. Yeah. I mean, the size of your land is crazy, and and resources, and so so it, it it is a different understanding with that's yeah. I think that's quite right. I think the fact that the and and I think the kind of founding narratives that I grew up in America. I know that the founding narratives are very different in America and Canada, but but both, by and large, are about the people who who came and started again here, right? Um, which I think does set you up on a very different sort of understanding than the place that we have belonged to as long as time existed, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. It's a very different sort of approach. And even the way that we cultivate a kind of affection for this place, to me, that that is increasingly the heart of it, is how... What does that look like for us? How do we how do we help people to do that well together? Yeah, and especially if you know you're not most likely going to remain here for 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 too long. It's like, yeah, most likely I'll be here for three years. Should I cultivate love for this land? Am I going to be gone for three years? And knowing that you know I'm moving to another place because of work, most likely I'm going to be there just for five years. And then I would have to cultivate love for the other place for five years. It's like what a hassle. And should I like, yeah. In those cases, does sure. it make sense? Should we? Kind of dovetails to the question about careers, not place as well, which and kind of our kind of desire to move around, but that's kind of a whole other thing. But anyway, yeah. how do we how yeah. do we cultivate? Yeah, 
how do we cultivate a love for place? That's yeah. I mean, that is a, I think that's a great and massive question. And I I've encountered this. I've done some teaching over the years. I mean, now at Regent, but I taught it at, at Columbia Bible college out in Abbotsford. And, and, um, this is the question I would always get from students is I'm only here for college. I'm only here for a few years. Why bother? Mm. Why bother? Yeah. And in a way that's the bigger theological question of why bother with anything? We're only here for, you know, four score and 10. I mean, so focus <laughs> on, you know, and there, there is a kind of theology that would say, I mean, anything that I'm proposing in terms of earth care is secondary to your faith, to your, you know, your eternal home. So why, why bother? And I guess the answer is just, it seems like it's woven into what it means to be a faithful human and a creature to live well while we have breath. I mean, that just seems to me to be part of what we're given to do. Um, how you cultivate affection for that and how you build meaningful relationships with that. Sure. It does. It is going to matter differently based on the amount of time you're in a place. So I'll give you an example. I have uh, part of my life is still with Erosha. Part of it is with the church. And I have just been, uh, well, about a year ago appointed um, as a curate, which is a kind of fancy word for, you know, a little bit more than an intern. <laughs> um at a church and we were going through the various things I could learn and do while I was there. And one of the things that this church is doing, I think really well and wants to do more of is engaging dialogue with uh, first nations in the area. Well, so they heard of my interest, my passion for creation. They thought, perfect. You're, you're the new guy. You do this. I said, I would love to do this, but the Mm -hmm. reality is my contract with you is for two years. And at the end of that, I have a Bishop who will move me. That's, that's for sure. And so the way that I can, engage a long-term relationship with these indigenous communities around you is fundamentally going to be skewed by that versus some of the parishioners who have been here for 30 years who may be for, so I am, I am aware that this is a real challenge and we need to discern this very carefully. The flip side, I guess I always told my students, I think we have to bloom where we're planted. So, you know, Claire, I don't know, you're, you're mm-hmm. from a faraway place. How long are you here? How do you, you know, well, you're probably discerning, you're discerning that in an ongoing way, aren't you? And you're, you're, you're trying to be attentive to, uh, to some sense of God's call, but also to the, you know what, the relationships that you're building, the home that you're making, that also has the power over time that it shapes that you may not want to move every three to five years. Um, so I think mm-hmm. we have to be open to, to as much of that as we can. <clears throat> Sorry for interrupting your podcast, but Claire Perini has something really, really important that she wants to share with you. For the last number of weeks and months, you will have had a little interruption from Octavio and I with me trying to say rgnt.net forward slash give. And the reason for that is um, that we love hearing from people who are enjoying and appreciating the podcast. We love hearing that. And we love hearing that you enjoy it so much that you want to give Regent a little bit of a donation to say thanks. And so this is an invitation to continue doing that or to do that for the first time uh, to allow us to continue to keep having these really good conversations with people all over the world about all sorts of things, about the good, beautiful kingdom of God and how it plays itself out in the life of everyday Christians. So if you would like to give a donation to Regent College, to say thanks for the podcast, Octavia and I would be delighted. 
You can do that at rgnt.net forward slash give. And please, if you'd leave a donation, uh, write in the comment box over there that the podcast sent you. Enjoy, Enjoy the, the rest, rest of, of our the conversation. conversation. Yeah, no, totally, and it is it is a challenge. You're totally right. There's not a, there's not a sort of a clear, simple answer to it. But I think you, I think the way even just you saying the home that you're building and the relationships that you're creating, like that, those are all those are all part of kind of this cultivating of place as well. Um, and I think sometimes right. we think, is it, is it, you know, I'm hearing you talk about the land. It's like, Hey, do I need to like go hiking all the time and make sure I'm, I know what grows here or whatever. It's like, yeah, but you might be doing a bit of that. You mm. might be sort of mm. making a garden and whatever, but actually as well, how else are you connected to this place kind of relationally yeah. and in, in the sense of home? Yeah. It's helpful. There is, I mean, I'll say one more thing about that, um, that I think, you know, I'm ner- I'm always a little bit nervous um, that I will be heard. I will be heard as as giving Christians one more thing to worry about. Right? It's like one more thing that we're failing at, that we're not doing well. That you know, and and you can get this sense that okay, to really be faithful, now here's a longer laundry list of stuff that God wants you to do. And I, you know, for me, I think it's theologically, it's the it's just the complete opposite. I, I do think actually the bedrock of all this is is the grace of being born into an amazing world and discovering that that world, we're not alone in it and God has entered into it on our behalf. Like that, that to me is the only reason to respond in any of these ways. And then I think to say, I I often get asked, give me the one or two or three things I have to do. (laughs) And I can't, I just can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, cultivating a love for your place would be one of those top threes. How that looks is, you know, you got to discern and and that is uh, there's this quote that we've used a lot that we cannot save the places we don't love and we cannot love the places we don't know and we cannot know the places we have not learned and so i do think on one level there is an invitation for all of us to to be learners of our place to understand and that's i know mm-hmm. you had some questions about this project of watershed discipleship that i've been involved in and that's that's really the heart of that mm-hmm. is to say okay, how does our life of discipleship shape the way we live in our place? How does the place we live in shape our life of discipleship? And and, and, and what are some things we can mm. do in that as learners in that kind of context? So that's that would always be a kind of starting place I would give people. Um, get to know the watershed you live in. Get to understand its history, what has shaped and formed it. What are the things that really threaten it today? What are these amazing gifts and wonders that still exist within it that's i think an essential starting point well and discipleship is a life like the discipleship process is is a a longer term process right it sort of it Mm. takes the pressure Mm. off the okay what else do i have to do it's actually that process of learning Mm -hmm. and the process Mm -hmm. of discipleship is it's it just keeps going and so it's kind of little things that sort of along the way that help shape and form Mm -hmm. um and cultivate that in us yeah yeah and let, talking about discipleship courses itself or in churches I've been to, most likely a lot of people have been to, not once had they, maybe a little bit, like had to do with the place I was in. Like it, it was like kind of, total of a, a general discipleship that would work wherever you are, you're at. Maybe that was the intention as well because pe- they, they believe people move all the time. But it wasn't like linked to, to the place. That wasn't part of my discipleship at all. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's right. And I think this is, I mean, I think, you know, this is a bigger, harder philosophical kind of nut to try and crack. But I think on the one hand, I think this is, you know, part and parcel of, of a very kind of quintessentially modern approach to learning where the best thing we could do would be to give you the kind of one universal truth of something, right? We need to get at that. So these kind of, you know, well, these sort of parochial issues are secondary. The, let's give you the, the broader approach to, to faith. I mean, I think that's probably a bigger, um, that's a bigger question for us in terms, in theological terms, because our tradition grows out of, I mean, almost the the exact opposite. I mean, the, you know, the, the Hebrew tradition is entirely place-based, and it's entirely focused on a particular people in a particular place with a particular law, a kind of way of life that's all woven in. And in some ways, you know, the the, the kind of, tradition that grows out of that around Jesus in the early church begins to say, no, it's our understanding that it's no longer just about God's particular covenant with this, but through Jesus, it's actually opened up all peoples and all places, right? That this is no, it's, it's not just for the Jews, it's for Greek, it's for all. And because it's for all, now we have this great kind of, you have this great missionary endeavor to try and get the news out to all. And I think it raises big questions that I know Regent considers in other ways around, you know, world Christianity. And what does it look like when this message that we have been entrusted with comes into contact with other cultures? And uh, the the place is as much a part of that as the language and dialect that they speak, right? I mean, what it means to be human and to form a culture is shaped by the place. I mean, your food tradition is shaped by your place, your language. it's, It's all very much, this is the ground that's under us. And yet we live, it's shocking when you begin to see it, to realize how much of kind of contemporary life we live without ever bothering. It's like the thing we don't have to think about anymore. And so, I, yeah, so think that this as a primary concern for me becomes, it becomes a way of paying attention to the things that we've overlooked, really. And have you, have you found sort of now that you have done the thing that you thought you would never do before Regent, which is go and be sort of the, per, the pastor in the church, the person in the church yeah. kind of, ha, have you found that actually... Has that has having that sort of context and that that space helped you in these things, or has has that has this these kind of convictions been crowded out by all the other things you've got to do? So you were sort of doing the theological education at a Russia, and that that was your that was your world, and now yes. you sort of how how's your work in the church kind of what are the opportunities there? How's that been? How's that been? Boy, that's a great question. I kind of I want to say you know talk to me in a year, but. Um, yeah. So how this happened in part was I I engaged a lot of different churches and church groups over my time at Arosha, and I had this kind of growing un, uncertainty or discomfort inside myself. You know, one of the things that would happen is I would go to a church, it would be pretty clear from engaging the group that there would be a handful of people everywhere who it was like I had showed up with cold water on a hot day. And there are people in every church who for 30 years have been, you know, really distraught about what's happening on the planet. And the fact that their preacher never mentions it is is heart, hurtful and, and upsetting. Um, and they would be, just be so thankful. And then there'd be people there who were very skeptical, who thought this, you know, I was sort of paid by Al Gore to show up and get people to drink Kool-Aid or something. <laughs> and, and then, so I would go into a question time after a, a, a talk or a sermon or presentation. And this is the, the, the variety I'd be navigating, right? Um, but what I found was that among those who were really 
concerned about this, that the the path of least resistance would, would often be to kind of lob rocks over the fence at the church, right? Well, the church doesn't seem to care about the thing I care about. The church is sitting mm-hmm. on its heels. The sh- church isn't this. You can insert this on almost any topic, right? The church isn't doing enough about X. And I realized that I got kind of suckered into that in part as a way of trying to build empathy with the people mm-hmm. I was engaging. But I also had yeah, this yeah. subtle voice inside me that was going, you know, buddy, the easiest thing to do is to stand on the outside and throw rocks over the fence, but like, what are you actually doing? It's one thing to say the church needs to do this. It's another to ask yourself, what are you really doing to engage this? Um, and engage the part of the church tradition that I grew up in, that I'm familiar with, that I know and love. And um, so over time, I mean, this is a much longer story about my life and discernment. But over time, that led me to say, okay, I need to, I need to see what this would look like. I don't see myself as being a kind of... Um, you know, upfront pastor in charge of a big church by myself or something. I think it's going to look, the model's going to look differently. And so far, in terms of the governing bodies of the church, they're they're encouraging that. They're going along with that. Um, mm. uh, so it's it's kind of difficult sometimes to to talk in church or to introduce the idea of of caring for the environment. I mean, that's fine. But then when you keep talking, people, you know, start getting nervous because okay, this is about to turn political. You know taking care of the environment and, and, and carbon emissions and, and who's allowed to take the mineral. So, so it starts getting political. And uh, that, that's, that's where, where I think some pastors tend to stop. You know, they only say some things, but not, you know, get right into it, into taking action because it, it all of a sudden becomes political. And, uh, and like w- one of the things that has uh, been uh, going on aqui, uh, here in Aki, <laughs> Spanish all of a sudden, going on here in, in Canada is, is uh, uh, you know, First Nations protecting their land. You know, and, and, and the government uh, trying to extract uh, riches and minerals from their lands. And, and h- how do you approach those, those conversations? And, and do you draw a line when you say, like, no, we're not going to talk about this in church? Or, yeah, talk to me. Sure. Boy, that's a great question. I, um, do I draw a line about what not to talk about in church? I don't do that very well, I'll be honest with you. And um, I do think that these these what we think of as as political questions to me are always um there is always theology that's inherent within them right so how we approach what are our yeah. kind of normative assumptions that we bring into a discussion of a pipeline or of a mining company you know there's a lot of canadian mining companies that are continuing to do work um you know in central and south america and i think i think faith ought to raise big questions about that for us. Um, Mm -hmm. I am careful. I will say I'm very careful on how I bridge those conversations, particularly in, in uh, settings and environments that I'm not familiar with who I'm engaging. Um, because, because the reality is that we have built, I mean, the Canadian economy has been built on resource extraction, um, for most Mm -hmm. of its history. I, I think that's something that we have to we have to grieve and lament that. I think the way that that has been carried out, uh, particularly in relationship to uh, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, is 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 abhorrent, and it's a very it's a very violent and upsetting mm-hmm. past. And the more you study the role that the church had in it, I think the more it's a source of something we need to grieve and lament that and say that wasn't right. Mm. The challenge is, I think, it's very hard for people to say that wasn't right, that's not right, and then to turn around and say, 
and my grandfather, you know, earned his living as a part of that. And I love my family. (laughs) And I am also thankful for being receiving what I have from it, being able to somehow hold that mixed part of our past, it seems is really, really hard work for us. It's easier to say that's evil, this is good, or that's that's wholly good, and just you know look, overlook that like genocide part of it. You know it's okay, um, but to say no, there's mm-hmm. a there's a much bigger, more uh, more um, mixed effect of this always. And I, to me, theologically, that's so important. I, I I really draw deeply from the reformers' notion that we are at one and the same time saint and sinner, and that we're always. We're always navigating inside of us this pull between that we we don't even have total to, total control over. That's not a that's really not a way of avoiding a hard conversation. I have I have important views on on these sorts of things, um, but to say I also have compassion that um, it's 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 a it's difficult it's difficult for us to make decisions when our own self interest goes against them. Um, even when we care very deeply. And so I see people struggling to do that. And that's why I, that would be the only way that I would limit what I might have to say is to try and foster a deeper dialogue with people about what it means. I have, you know, I've been in print and I've said publicly um, things about what I think the, the role of the church in trying to stand in a deeper solidarity with um, First Nations in Canada. I do feel like for this time and place, that is that is a call. And I have I have been at several points to, uh, you know, to marches and rallies and gatherings where there has been a call to say, clergy, stand with us, stand like show us that you care about what we're facing. Mm-hmm. And I think, goodness, if we if people have the audacity to turn to the church and think we would care and show up, we we should be showing up, you know, putting our bums in the in the chairs. Um, so certainly, I do think um, we can't shy away from these conversations. I think it's hard to have them if what we're fundamentally arguing about is a policy decision or how we interpret Canadian land law. That's all very, very important. Um, But the deeper theological question for me is probably the piece I want to keep pushing on. I don't think Christians have have developed or been formed enough in that understanding to engage these things. So that's that's where I try and begin. So, Matt, um, you know, where... We're in COVID. I'm not sure if you've heard anything about this global pandemic. People haven't been talking about it much, but um, if you haven't, there there is one going on. And uh, one of the things we started to see early on in that was it seemed that creation was, you know, we were seeing whales, we were seeing less pollution, all of those things. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. so talk to us a little bit more about how sort of just as we wrap up here, um, kind of carbon emissions and COVID and, um, yeah, our responses and any thoughts you have around that. Yeah. Yeah, I have, um, though I live on Vancouver Island, it's the, the COVID is there too, it turns out. And uh, yeah, so I've, I've heard of this thing, this strange thing of which you speak. I, um, it is, it's so, you know, one of the fascinating things, right, is that um, even in this crazy little mini paradise of British Columbia that we're all spending time when it turns out that when you ground 98% of the airplanes over two weeks of time, um, even places that thought they had really good air quality can see further. I mean, it, it just turns out. And, and so it is this interesting moment for us, I think, of waking up to the collective human impact that we're having on creation to mm-hmm. say, wow, when we stop business as usual, 
things do start to to shift, and some some it shifts. Up, I mean, extremely rapidly. I have a friend whose uh, whose partner is from Tofino, and they were up there. They actually got kind of trapped up there because of COVID, visiting family. Um, but they were saying, yeah, we haven't seen whales from the beach in years, and we see them four times a day now. And part of that is that these whales hey. have been chased by boats, you know, 16 hours a day, six days a week. And now there's no boat chasing them around to get your shot for, you know, Instagram. Mm. So, and it's, the, you know, it's more, the problems of the world are bigger than, you know, boats. But um, I think the opportunity really for the church and for us as a people, a people of faith, a people who are trying to follow the way of Jesus in COVID is to say, gosh, what part of our normal, just, you know, the quote, way we do things, the kind of life we've been socialized into, what part of that is really helping us live more like the way of Jesus in the world? And what part of that is actually really not? Um, And I think COVID is showing that Mm -hmm. on both sides, right? I think the fact that we have been so constrained in our physical touch with each other is making us realize we desperately need, (laughs) we need to be embodied beings that share that embodiment together. And so it's showing us that in a, in a, in a hard way. Right. Um, But I think the flip side is, is to say, wow, some of what drives our economy, while it is quote unquote necessary, um, I do think it raises bigger questions about what is a kind of sustainable way of life that can really benefit creation in the long term. I'm not necessarily saying we should never have a single airplane take another flight, but I do think that if we study the climate and the carbon question closely, there there is more carbon presently available to us than we can afford to safely emit into the atmosphere. If we keep going, we will just cook the planet. There's really no... There's no, there's no doubt that that's a scenario that we we could and would face. So then I think it, the question becomes: How do we? How then do we uh, create a culture and a, and a pattern of travel and of agriculture and of recreation and of I mean all the things that humans do to thrive? How do we begin to sort of shift that into a way that is ultimately more sustainable? And not just sustainable, but indeed regenerative that can help the earth to rebuild a little bit. And that's the thing that I think is so moving when you do see, um, when you see that given, given a little bit of help, um, given a little bit of a, of a mm. shot, creation can heal. It can bounce back and often in ways that shock and surprise us. Um, there's, and, and for me, this is, I think this is deeply theological. There's a line in, in Hopkins poem where he says, and for all this, nature is never spent. And I think there's this notion that for all that we have said and done, there is somehow, God is somehow committed to God's creation in such a way that given given our little bit of help, things can heal and they can come back and there can be a kind of redemption mm-hmm. in time that we can live and experience. And so for me, that's a great source of hope. That's a great source of inspiration you know, that's why I try and get up every day and continue on in the midst of this, even when, you know, certainly we have plenty of data that's not looking like whales returning to beaches. It's it's looking discouraging. So I think we have to hold both the, the hope and the gratitude as well as the grief and the lament about this. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Matt, thanks so much for joining us yeah. on your undisclosed location. Cheers. It's been great. Lakeside somewhere in BC. Um, Yeah, it's great to to chat with you. Thanks for your time. Okay, love it. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.